Today's episode of the hashtag call the scene podcast book club episode of how to be an anti-racist chapter 12 and the name of this chapter is class. I actually enjoy reading this chapter um, because it is in line with some research that I plan to do in 2020. So it was um, a welcome deterrent or not deterrent, a welcome distraction from um, or a uh, uh, side road or whatever you want to call it from all the other stuff that I have been reading in this book and be like, oh my God, oh my God. So um, this was a welcome. Um, it was I was it was unexpected. It was nice. I liked it. So we'll see if you enjoy it as much as I do and why I'll, I enjoy it. So this cl- um, chapter 12 is called Class, and we'll start as we always do with the definitions. Class racist, one who is racializing the classes, supporting policies of racial capitalism against those race classes and justifying them by racist ideas about those race classes. Anti-racist, anti-capitalist, one is a, who is opposing racial capitalism. Ooh, okay, so I'm trying to see where I want to start here. He talks about the t- on the page 152, he talks about the term ghetto and um, talks. About, okay, so the dark ghetto is an intentionalized pathology. It is chronic, self perpetuating uh, pathology. It is the futile attempt by those with power to confine that pathology so as to prevent the spread of the contagion to a larger community. Um, pathology meaning a deviation from the norm. Poor blacks in the ghetto are pathological, abnormal. Abnormal from whom? What group is the normal? White elites, black elites, poor whites, poor Latinx, Asian elites, and native poor? All of these groups, like the group poor blacks, are distinct race classes, racial groups at the intersection of race and class, Poor people are a class. Black people are a race. Black poor people are a race class. When we say poor people are lazy, we are expressing an elitist idea. When we say black people are lazy, we are expressing a racist idea. When we say black poor people are lazier than poor white, white elites and black elites, we are speaking at the intersection of elitist and um, racist idea, the ideological intersection of that forms class racism. When one policy exploits poor people, it is an elitist policy. When the policy exploits black people, it is a racist policy. When a policy exploits black poor people, the policy exploits at the intersection of elitist and racist policy. A policy intersection of class racism. When we racialize classes, support racist policies against those race classes and justify them by racist ideas, we are engaging in race in class racism. To be anti-racist is to equalize the race classes. To be anti-racist is to root the economic disparities between the equal race classes and policies, not people. Class racism is ripe among white Americans who castrate poor whites as white trash as it is in black America where racist blacks degrade 
poor blacks as them niggas who live in the in the ghetto. And so I want to he mentioned racist blacks again. So I want to make sure you go back to read chapter eleven where we talked about class and uh, color. I mean, we talked about um, it was about black and that. I do not ascribe, we in this community do not ascribe as black people can be racist against other blacks. What we do have is internalized race, uh, white supremacy and anti-blackness that we must deal with. Uh, pathological people made the pathological ghetto segregationists say. The pathological ghetto made the pathological people assimilationists say. To be anti-racist is to say that the pol po political and economic conditions, not the people in poor black neighborhoods are pathological. Pathological conditions are making the residents sicker and poorer while they strive to survive and thrive, while they invent and reinvent cultures and behaviors that may be different, but never inferior to those of residents in richer neighborhoods. But if the elite race classes are judging the poor race classes by their own culture and behavioral norms, then the poor race classes appear inferior. How, whoever creates the norm creates the hierarchy and positions their own race class at the top of the hierarchy. So your homework number one is on page from one page 152. Make a list of as many policies you can think of or find that function at the intersection of race class, of, excuse me, of class racism. Again, let me repeat that. Um, question, homework question number one uh, from page 152. Make a list of as many policies you can think of or find that function at the intersection of class racism. So we move on to page 154. White racists still drag out the culture of poverty. We have got this tailspin of culture in our inner city, in particular of men not working and just generations of men not even thinking about work and not learning the value and, and the culture of work. This was a Wisconsin representative who just left the um, House of Representatives. Uh, he said this in 2015. So there's a real um, culture problem here that has to be dealt with. So your question number two is, from page 154, which politicians globally within the past five years have taken stances and promoted policies that are rooted in class racism? What are, what are those policies and who do they negatively impact and who do they benefit? So again, um, from page 154, which politicians globally, because this is a global thing, within the past five years have taken stances and promoted policies that are rooted in class racism? What were the policies? Who did they benefit? And who did they negatively impact? And the reason I want you to do this is because um, there's, again, we keep acting as if... As if um, this is something far in the in the past. Like this is not doesn't happen currently. This was um, Wisconsin representative until 2019 um, when he decided that he was not going to run again. So um, this is not something in the distant past as people like to talk about, but um, something very much in the present. All right, um, continuing on on page 154, something was making poor people poor, according to this idea, and it was welfare. Welfare transforms the individual from a dignified, industrious, self-reliant, spiritual being into a dependent animal creature without his knowing it. The Supreme Court 
I mean, Supreme U.S. Senator um, Barry Goldwater wrote in The Conscience of the Conservative in 1960. Goldwater and his ideological descendants said little to nothing about rich people who depended on the welfare of inheritance, tax cuts, government contracts, loopholes, and bailouts. They said little to nothing about the white middle class depending on the welfare of the New Deal and the GI Bill subsidized um, suburbs and exclusive white networks. Welfare for middle and upper class people remained out of the discourse on handouts as welfare for the black poor became the true oppressor of in the conservative version of the of the oppression inferiority theory. The theses. We see that um, people want to talk about affirmative action and they've been talking about the, the, the evils of affirmative action for so long. And you look at and we could just talk about in this in, in the college system. Affirmative action benefits white women more than anybody else, and white and rich people have always had their their benefit of affirmative action, which has been um, legacy in, enrollment, buying a building, and all these other things. But those things never come into the conversation as handouts. Um, whiteness believes they earned a legacy. They earned admittance into a college because granddad or somebody bought a building. Um, they don't see that as welfare. On page 155, Clark considered the black poor less stable than the white poor. The white poor and slum dweller have the advantage of the belief that they can rise economically and escape from the slums. He wrote, the Negro believes himself to be closely confined to the pervasive low status of the ghetto. Obama made a similar case during his campaign speech on race in 2008. For all those who scratched and clawed their way to get to the American dream, there were many who didn't make it. Those who were ultimately defeated in one way or the other by discrimination. That legacy of defeat was passed on to future generations. Those men and women and increasingly young women who we see standing on street corners and languishing in our prisons without the hope or prospect of the future. This stereotype of the hopeless, defeated, unmotivated, poor black is without evidence. Research shows, recent research shows, in fact, that poor blacks are more optimistic about their prospects than poor whites are. It's interesting because even, you know, this Obama thing, he can say that this one generation were ultimately defeated in one way or the other by discrimination, but he cannot extend the same level of consideration or thought to their um their offspring, or um you know the next or the future they pass this this discrimination is it it goes back to that conversation we had a few at the beginning of the thing about the DNA of you know this trauma that is in our DNA and I no longer believe that bullshit either. Um, it is not, and that it's it's in it's um, we pass it on from generation to generation, and so this is what um, Obama said in this. He can he can extend some grace to the fir- first few generations of this, but current generations, it's it's the default of you know um, generational issues and not issues that are impacting their lives today. Um, and so I wrote in the margin, this is where the clash between generations comes from. Um, this is where the clash between where you see older black women who are 
firmly in the camp of uh, Biden and you see people like myself and younger who see him as nothing but a racist as a uh, similist. That's what he is because he definitely has and he, how he speaks definitely is from a place of blacks or and people of color are inferior. But if we work hard enough and we get enough of these um, handouts or um, steps up, we can be better. We can get to that white ideal. Um, continuing on page 155, for ages, racist poor whites have enriched their sense of self on the step ladder of racist ideas, what W.E.B. Du Bois famously called the wage of whiteness. I may not be rich, but at least I'm not a nigger. Racist black elites, meanwhile, heighten their sense of self on the stepladder of racist ideas on what we can call the wage of black elitism. Um, I may not be white, but at least I'm not them niggers. Um, on page 156, ghetto also became as much as an adjective, ghetto culture, ghetto people as a noun loaded with the racist ideas unleashed all sorts of black on black crimes on poor black communities. I saw poor blacks as the product of racism and not capitalism, largely because I thought I knew racism, but knew I didn't know about capitalism. Um, but it is impossible to know racism without understanding the intersection with capitalism. As Martin Luther King Jr. said in his critique of capitalism in 1967, it means ultimately coming to see that the problem of racism, the problem of economic exploitation, the problem of war are all tied together. These are the triple evils that are interrelated. On page 157, in the 21st century, persistent racial inequities and in poverty, unemployment, and wealth show the life work of conjoined twins. The black poverty rate in 2017 stood at 20%, nearly triple the white poverty rate. The black unemployment rate has been at least twice as high as white unemployment rate for the last 50 years. The wage gap between whites and blacks is the largest in 40 years. The medium net wealth of white families is about 10 times that of black families. According to one forecast, white households are expected to own 86 times more than wealth, more wealth than black households by 2020 and 68 times more than Latinx households. The disparity stands to only get worse if racist housing policies tax policies benefiting the rich and mass incarceration continue unabated according to the forecasters. By 2053, the medium wealth of black households is expected to redline at zero and Latinx households will redline two decades later. That's depressing as fuck, <laughs> man. And again, I, I, I just want to keep hammering to you and your, your, your peeps, your folks that, um, yeah, y'all want to keep blaming this on black people and brown people. And um, even your poor are better off than, than, our, than, our, than our poor. And they don't even see, and they see a value in what they're, they're doing. They don't see it. Um, yeah, they still strive, or the, the thought is they still strive. Um, um, on page 158, the global gap between the, rich, the richest 
and whitest regions in the world and the poorest and blackest regions in the world has tripled in size since the 1960s at the same time as the global non-white middle class has grown. Upward mobility is greater for white people and downward mobility is greater for black people. And equity is non-existent on race class ladder in the United States. White poverty is not as distressing as black poverty. Poor blacks are more, are much more likely to live in neighborhoods where other families are poor, creating a poverty of resources and opportunities. Sociologists refer to this as the double burden. With black poverty dense and white poverty scattered, black poverty is visible and surrounds its victims. White poverty blends in. I want to talk about this because there are two examples and I'm reading this. Another one popped in my head. So I no longer shop at Kroger Shopping Center grocery store for this one reason. So um, I live in a chocolate city and I live in a black community. Um, And in the Kroger's on... It's not my county, but in the Kroger, um, in one county, on the, on the one side of the county where it's black, um, they're putting up these, these um, plastic partitions that remind me of a convenience store where they can lock off certain parts of the store. And on the surface, someone would say, oh, this is for theft prevention. But on the other side of the county, um, there are Kroger stores that do not have this because on the other side of the county, there is um, is the, the the richest people in the city live. Um, that's where your athletes and your um, your star, your your you know entertainment stars and your moguls and stuff. But it's the same county, just on the other end of the county. And I want to highlight where it says, poor blacks are much more likely to live in neighborhoods where other families are poor, creating a poverty of resources and opportunities. So I want to break this down to you. And I was going to do a video about this, but this gives me a good time to break this down. So you have two Kroger stores in the same county, but on opposite ends of town. The one in the black community, they're caging up the products, you know, and they're going to wrap it in. We're doing this for theft prevention, but we're not going to do that on the other end of town. And so then I want to talk to you about the the, the poverty, creating a poverty of resources and opportunities. So um, tax base in most cities um, is, is based on housing, um, you know, um, property taxes. Well, on the, on the um, because again, when we're talking about what he says, um, that with, with black poverty dense and white poverty scattered. So you have... Um, on the south side or where the black people are, there are more apartment complexes. There are very few single family homes to to um, grab that or get that um, property tax from. And the ones that are there are not valued as high as you go on the south, the north side of town. Very few, if any, apartment um, multi dwelling. I don't know what they call them. Multi family dwellings. I mean, I would say. It would be hard-pressed in the area I'm talking about to think that there are any apartments up there. They're all multi-million dollar homes. So now your your tax base is different. But in the same county, they don't share that tax that tax across different cities. No. I mean, within the, in the county, no. Each city within the county keeps that money. So it's the county, but that money is going to stay up there where it is 
Um, and it's not going to trickle down to where their their tax base is lower. So then that says, so, so then how are schools funded? Oh, schools are funded based on property taxes. So now you have poorly funded schools on the south side of the town because of the tax base there. But not only well-funded schools, but schools with opportunities and um, you know, you got your private schools, you have everything up there being funded um, out of taxes and private income. Um, and so th- before you start, before you, and I used to do this, so again, I'm guilty, but I've learned to start looking beneath the surface. So I'm not going to Kroger anymore because what you've shown me is that you, y- you've allowed racist policies to dictate how you do your business. So I get it. There's theft over there. People don't have shit to eat. I mean, they don't have money. I get it. But, um, you know, that's the price of doing business because you can't tell me that nobody up north is stealing. Um, I don't, it's, it's, it's just a really fucked up situation. There are no simple answers, but to put these partitions up and, and to a- act like that is the only recourse you have is problematic for me. So um, I'm going to keep going. Attributing these inequities solely to capitalism is a faulty as is as faulty as attributing them solely to racism. Believing these inequities will be eliminated through eliminating capitalism is a fault is as faulty as believing these inequities will be eliminated through eliminating racism. Rolling back racism in a capitalist notion, excuse me, rolling back. Let me do that again. Rolling back racism in a capitalist nation can eliminate the inequities between black and white poor, middle class, middle income, Latinx and Asians, rich whites and natives. Anti-racist policies in the 1960s and 70s narrowed the inequities on some measures, but anti-racist policies alone cannot eliminate the inequities between rich and poor Asians or between rich whites and white trash. These inequities between race classes. As racial disparities within the classes narrow in recent decades, the economic inequities within the races have broadened, as have the class racist idea justifying these inequities. Anti-racist policies cannot eliminate class racism without anti-capitalist policies. Anti-capitalism cannot eliminate class racism without anti-racism. So I wrote in a note, redefining capitalism. Um, And then it says socialist. And um, so I haven't told many people this, but the project that I'm working on, I'm trying to clear my deck now, is a project that I'm working on, a book that I had in my mind for definitely last year. I put it on the back burner and it's coming to the four again this year in this book. And this is why this chapter so excites me because it it, it tickles the research um, particles in my brain, the cells in my brain. I'll continue to talk on and then I'll tell you about that. So it says socialism, socialist and capitalist spaces are not automatically anti-racist. Some socialists and communists have pushed segregationist or post-racial programs in order not to alienate racist white workers. And so I wrote in the margin, this is the point that is completely missing uh, in the conversation. So when we talk, when people want to talk about, oh, socialism, uh, down with capitalism, we need a socialist society. Socialism 
capitalism, Marxism, fascism, they're all economic theories that have been rooted in racism. And until you, I agree with that, you have to deal with the intersection of the economics, whatever theory it is, and the racism, oppressive policies that are, that are used um, to implement that. So at the bottom, he uses the word anti-racist, anti-capitalism. And my theory is anti-racist capitalism. And that's what my book is, is going to be about. I'm going to write a book, and the title is Redefining Capitalism Without White Supremacy. And the subtitle is The Economics of Being Anti-Racist. So this is why I'm so excited about this chapter, because I see that there's research on being anti-racist, anti-capitalism. I want to know and test, can we be anti-racist capitalism? Um, because as I said, racism, uh, or excuse me, capitalism is a economic theory as, it, as has socialism, Marxism, fascism, communism, and any other ones, and they've all been rooted in oppression and white supremacy. So um, your, your question number three for your homework is, it's on page 159, and it says, do some research on China's detention camps and their current treatment of, of, a, of Muslim majority, um, excuse me, Muslim minority groups. Um, and they're calling them Muslim re-education camps. Um, and so that's today. That's happening right now. I just saw it on the news. Um, when, you, when this airs, it's going to be Sunday. So it would have would, been sun, um, the, the previous Sunday on um, NBC Nightly News. They talk about these Chinese de detention camps that um, they call them re Muslim re-education camps, um, but they're actually detention camps. And based on the numbers, they are holding more people in these camps than were held um, during Nazi um, in, the, in the internment camps. So that's a lot of people. Uh, and it's going on right now. And that proves that capitalism, and, I mean, so socialism and, and, and communism aren't devoid of racist policy or racist ideology. Um, on page 160, white labor deprives the Negro of his right to vote, denies him education, denies him affiliation with trade unions, expels him from decent houses and neighborhoods and heaps upon him the public insults of open color discrimination, the United States has a white working class aristocracy. And this I wrote in the margin, this is the message blacks folks hear and internalize from politicians. And this is why, again, I don't wanna hear the, the um, everything we, you know, we keep hearing about, you know, the angst of the white working class. Well, this is what that is. When you focus on the working class or the synonymous working class aristocracy, you're, you're saying white people to the exclusion of anybody else. And that is fundamentally racist. Um, the link between racism and capitalism. He says, I keep using the term anti-capitalist as opposed to socialist and communist to include the people who publicly and privately question and loathe capitalism, but do not identify as socialists and capitalists. I use anti-capitalist because conservative defenders of capitalism regularly say that their liberal and socialist opponents are against capitalism. They say efforts to provide a safe net for all people are anti-capitalist. They say 
um, attempts to prevent monopolies are capitalist. They say efforts to strengthen weak unions and weaken exploitive work uh, and weaken exploitive work owners are capital anti-capitalist. They say plans to normalize owner um, worker ownership and regulations preventing con protecting consumers, workers, and environments from big businesses are anti-capitalist. They say laws taxing the rich more. The rich is more than the middle class, redistributing pilfered wealth and guaranteeing basic incomes are anti-capitalist. They say wars to end poverty are anti-capitalist. They say campaigns to remove the profit motive from essential life sectors like education, healthcare, utilities, mass media, and incarceration are anti-capitalist. And so that's, yeah. It's it's really interesting. It's like this is one thing I I find interesting about his this is his work because it highlights the binary that so many people live in, and they don't. Life is a bunch of shades of gray. So, continuing on one sixty six, the history of capitalism of world warring class of world warring classing, slave trading, enslaving, colonizing, depressing wages, and this this positioning land and labor and resources and rights bears out the conservative definition of capitalism. And my thing in the margin is let's redefine capitalism. We get to read, I think we get, to, I think we can redefine this. Um, liberals who are capitalists to their bone as U.S. Senator um, Elizabeth Warren identifies herself present a different definition of capitalism. I believe in markets and the benefits they can produce when they work. Warren said when asked what the identity meant to her. I love the competition that comes with the markets that has a decent rules. The problem is that when the rules are not enforced, when the markets are not level playing fields, all the wealth is scraped up in one, one direction, leading to the deception and theft. Theft is not capitalism, Warren said. She has proposed a series of regulations and reforms that her conservative opponents class as anti-capitalist. They say other countries that have these rules are not capitalist. Warren should be applauded for her efforts to establish and, and enforce rules that end the theft and level the playing field for hopefully all race classes, not just the white middle class. But if Warren succeeds, then a, the new economic system will operate in a fundamentally different way than it has ever operated before the American history. Either the new economic system will not be capitalist or the old system will replace what was was not capitalist. They cannot both be capitalist. And I say, I disagree with this. We redefine terms all the time. Um, an example is the dictionary. The dictionary is something that changes every day, add words every year and take words out. Um, again, um, Dr. Kendi is is very binary in certain things, and I just don't agree with this. I don't I don't agree that either we have capitalism this way or we have capital what this thing, and it's you can't have both. Um, I think, and but he does get to a point in the next paragraph that I that I um, find that I agree with. Uh, when Warren, when Senator Warren and others define capitalism in this way as markets and market rules and competition and benefits from winning, they are disentangling capitalism from theft, race, and racism and sexism and imperialism, which I totally agree with. If that's their capitalism, I can see how 
they can remain capitalist to the bone. However, however, history does not affirm this definition of capitalism. Markets and market rules and competition and benefits from winning existed long before the rise of capitalism in the modern world. What capitalism introduced to this mix was global theft, racially uneven playing fields, unidirectional wealth that rushes upward in unprecedented amounts. Since the dawn of racial capitalism, when were market level playing fields? When could working people compete equally with capitalists? When could black people compete equally with white people? When could African nations compete equally with European nations? When did the rules not generally benefit the wealthy and white nations? Humanity needs honest definitions of capitalism and racism based on the actual living history. And I totally agree with that. And I say here in my margins, I agree that race must be um, a leading factor in redefining capitalism. And this is why I don't agree with um, uh, some of the things that um, Elizabeth Warren and and the Green New Party and, and um, um, Sanders talk about because they won't talk about race. Elizabeth Warren talks about race in isolation in these different things, but she does not tie them fundamentally to the economic thing uh, strategies that she's talking about. She does not talk about race and she talks about the, you know, there's a disparity and she'll say something about, um, you know, the, 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 the death rates in uh, women who are giving birth and their babies. She'll talk about that, but it's very separate from the policies that she is um, proposing. So when she talks about economics and she talks about um, the tax on the, the um, billionaires, she doesn't talk about that fundamentally the system that we're working within is racist. And so even when you um, tax the, the billionaires and you get this, um, the, this, this tax base, it's not going to be shared equitably. So there, so you're getting this money, but it still won't be shared equitably. Certain, it's going to go to the white middle class or who, who the system, the racist white supremacy system deems are more important. It's not going to trickle down to poor blacks. So um, this is again why I really want to tackle this, um, this hypothesis, that my hypothesis that is there a such thing and it's, it's again, it's a hypothesis. I want to test it. Is there a such thing as an anti-racist capitalism? So I'll, what I'll end with is this is my hypothesis. And I again, I want to know if and can we have an anti-racist capitalism? Because I will, I agree with everything ab- above that capitalism is essentially racism. Racism is essentially capitalist. But what I challenge is that's how we've defined it. I hope that we can my. My hope is that I can, we can figure out a way to define it differently and move forward. Um, and so that's why the book is Redefining Capitalism Without White Supremacy, The Economics of Being Anti-Racist. So, um, yeah, that's where I'll go into 2020 um, doing research on is there a such thing? Can we create a such thing as open markets, free market system, competition and all the like that people attribute to capitalism without the racism with and and it also be anti-racist so that is me for today and you have a wonderful day goodbye thanks for listening to this special episode of the hashtag call the scene podcast i would like once again to give thanks to the author of how to be an anti-racist professor ibram x kendi 
Learn more about his work at his website at ibramxkindy.com. Please consider becoming an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Call the Scene movement by visiting the website at hashtagcallthescene.com. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.